This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. For this episode, we're speaking to journalist James Montague, and he's going to be speaking to us about the way in which football ultras have quite significantly influenced various different violent uprisings and revolutions across the world. In some cases, these ultras ended up even being soldiers, militants in ongoing wars. Very interesting topic. If you like what we're doing please do consider supporting us on our patreon that's patreon.com slash popular front so firstly um congratulations on the book from what i've read it's really fucking interesting man really like it um but what we're going to be talking about today is basically how Football hooligans aided the fight in Ukraine against the Russian-backed separatists. I don't even know really where to start with this. Um, so maybe yeah. maybe just kind of uh, explain to us, how did you get involved in this? You know, talking to the, the football hooligan firms that ended up actually being, you know, soldiers and militants. Well, I mean, years ago, I started writing about football, but it, it, and none of it was actually about football. I think it made me desire to you know, be a be a foreign correspondent in some way, but I was a bit of a failed foreign correspondent. So I kept on finding these kind of football stories that really reflected um, a lot of really political subjects, and especially in the Middle East. And a lot of them ended up being about conflicts and war. And obviously, you don't you don't find organised football leagues in war zones, right? In conflict zones, it's one of the first things that goes out the window. But um, you know, you started to notice these stories. Like, I mean, I was in Zambia one time, and I did a story about. Uh, the Libyan national football team trying to qualify for the Africa Cup of Nations. And they're in the middle of the civil war. Um, Gaddafi had been toppled, but he hadn't yet been caught. And Gaddafi's sons were like massive fans of the national football team and, and tried to kind of use it to keep kind of Gaddafi in power and try to, you know, this patri- patriotism, this rally around the flag effect. And so, um, you know, the, a lot of the players are actually fighting on the front lines for the rebels. And I found that this story, there's one of the players there was... Uh, he was fighting in Misrata, and his uh, you know CO said, "Listen, listen, you need to go. And you need to get Libya to the African Cup of Nations. You could do more good for Libya playing there than you would be, you know, maybe taking a sniper's bullet here." And they sent him back to Zambia to play this game against Zambia, and they managed to qualify. It was a huge national moment as well. And a few days later, they found. I mean, obviously, you know, everyone knows what happened to Gaddafi. A few days later, but those are the kind of stories that I was really interested in, and. Um, one of the things that I've always come across is just organisation of football fans. Because if you ask most people in in the UK or anywhere really around the world, ask about football fans, they think they're stupid or violent or um, racist. And that's kind of the first three words that usually come out of anybody's mouths. But what I discovered was that really they're organised, extraordinarily political, extremist in a way. You don't really find centrist ultras in many places. You find them far left, far right. Um, and so I decided to write this book, 1312, Among the Ultras, because I wanted to tell the story of a particular form of, of organisation of football fans, which is which is the ultras movement, which kind of emerges out of Italy in the late 1960s. Extremely hierarchical people live it, almost like a gang, like they live it 
24 hours a day, seven days a week. And in this organisational structure, which is extraordinarily hierarchical, very patriarchal, very male, uh, not a lot of women involved, certainly not back in the day. And it usually involves these climactic displays of flares, um, uh, messaging. So you'd have whatever political issue was of that week would be would be written on the choreography and shown. Uh, and obviously this is before social media, so a lot of times it wouldn't be recorded. It would just be whatever was the issue that week that they wanted to, whether that was ticket prices or racism or whatever issue that was was there. And so this this kind of subculture ends up spreading all around the world. And so you end up, kind of a mixture of ultras and like the Barris Bravas in South America, a bit of hooliganism from, from England and from Scotland. And it becomes a dominant youth culture, like one of the biggest youth cultures in the world, like millions of people around the world, extremely anti-police, hence why I called it 1312, which is you'll literally see that number code on every single uh, football stadium around the world. Like I saw it in Casablanca, Bosnia, um, you see it in Moscow, you see it in Berlin, you see it in... Uh, actually, I don't think I saw one in Riyadh, but, like, you know, you'll see it pretty much everywhere. And, uh, you know, this hatred of the police, hatred of authority, a, a need and a want to be kind of, um, you know, uh, no face, no name is one of the big phrases that you see in, in, in ultra culture. You know, that you are, you are outside of social control, you're outside of government control and police control, and you want kind of anonymity to be in a subculture to do what you want. And a lot of the times that could be, you know, fighting opponents, although there's not that much violence in the scene anymore. But on the side of that, there's also this, there's a kind of another scene that kind of a subculture within a subculture called like arranged fighting, where you have these firms that fight each other in these extraordinarily uh, well-organized, ultra-violent battles all across Europe. It can be five versus five, 10 versus 10, 100 versus 100, um, you know, I mean, the Eastern Europeans, particularly like Poland, Russia, Ukraine, um, Scandinavians are very good at it as well. And again, they're completely secret uh, and they have to arrange it. It's called a collar footballer in Ukraine and in, and in Russia as well. But this this so, is what we would have considered like hooliganism back in the day, right, in the UK. Yeah, but back in the day in the UK, it was very much urban warfare between two groups of pissed up lads. And that was it. It was, this is completely different. This is very, there are, there are rules involved, right? You've got to come up with the same numbers. You're not allowed we weapons. There's a there's certain honour right. in the type of fights that you have, right? And if the other side doesn't turn up, then that is just, that is, you couldn't dishonour their group more. You should, you should basically dissolve your group if you don't turn up. And so... Um, and these guys, you know, you had it was it was about bravery and fueled by alcohol in England. Uh, but when we saw, I don't know if you remember back in 2016 when the European Championships was in France, England were playing Russia, and this was a really important moment because England has an extremely well regarded reputation because of the casual movement in the 80s and a lot of films like Green Street Hooligans, which a lot a lot of even in, when I went to Indonesia, a lot of uh, the ultras there they see it almost as a documentary like a this, is, deeply, this is how you deeply beat deeply appalling film as well it, 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 it is but I, I make this I, make, I think I make a grandiose claim that says that, it, that apart from Harry Potter I can't think of a British film in the 21st century that has had such a big influence on youth culture around the world it's literally like you will not believe how like I remember meeting um, a group called La Familia in Jerusalem and they're, they're the kind of uh, ultras of uh, Beitar Jerusalem, um, ultra-nationalists, racist, I would say, you know, on the fascist scale, uh, literally never had a never had a, a Palestinian or an Arab play for them, riot any time a Palestinian or an Arab will 
will get on the, you know, uh, even rumoured to sign for the team. So a really kind of hardcore bunch. Don't like foreigners, obviously don't like journalists as well. Journalists are seen as the same as uh, the police or the government. Like, we're just lackeys for them, basically, like painting the ultras in a bad way. And, you know, as soon as they found out that I was from England, I was a West Ham fan, they started to, they didn't speak any English apart from um, I'm West Ham till I die in a Mockney accent, you know. And I, and I thought, well, that's what an amazing... Like what a powerful thing that that film has been, which most people would ridicule, you know, in England. But actually, you know, it's meant a lot to, to a lot of people. And so um, that's kind of how most people view kind of hooligan groups, uh, you know, this kind of very English style. But in 2016, when Russia played England, this was the new world, the Akola footballer against, you know, this old beer-bellied, skinhead 40s and 50 year old English guys, they were up against guys that were ripped, that were trained in martial arts. Yeah, fully henched off. Like the footage is mental. Yeah, I mean, henched up. And all of these guys are from the Ecola footballer scene, right? Where you are learning several martial arts. You are training. A lot of them don't drink, which is mad when, I mean, I've got a Polish family. And so, you know, I mean, every, like to not drink is a, is a matter for, you know, if you meet a Polish guy who doesn't drink, it's quite a big thing. <laughs> so, you know, and they, so they're not drinking. A lot of them take steroids and whatever, but they're, you know, they are, these are, they are weapons, you know, and you saw the way they, and there was one poor guy who was put in a, a hospital in a coma and he never really recovered. I think he was attacked with a hammer, but, you know, it, this was the moment where like that type of English hooliganism forever was banished and that this is the new, the new order, the new way. And I thought that this is such a kind of like, uh, you know, and you also have left wing ultras, by the way, in Germany, like St. Pauli have their own fighting firms as well in Hamburg. So, you know, this yeah, I've is, been there. they're a great bunch. Yeah, they're a great bunch. And, and, and so you've got this incredible varied um, subculture, but because they hate journalists and authors and, and people sniffing around and, and telling their, you know, grassing on them in a way, I guess that's how they see it. It's almost impossible to, to write uh, the story of who they are, where they came from, how this really important culture existed or how, how it kind of like came to life. And so I decided to write 1312 to, to, to do that. And I felt I was long enough in my career that I could, um, I wasn't considered like other journalists because I never really write about football. I go there and and I never had any money when I started out. So I was always standing behind the goals and the cheaper seats where the ultras were standing, where the ultras always stood. And that's, that's how I always understood football. When I went to West Ham, I stood in North Bank. And so I was con not quite considered one of them, but I was considered like, okay, you can, you can come in and... He's all right sort of thing. He's all, he's all right. You know, as long as you have the right person, because it's all about finding the right person. Because it's, it's, it's a culture that also kind of like shuns social media. Like nothing's got to be put on, nothing can be put online. Everything's done on Telegram. Uh, it's face-to-face -face contact. So if somebody vouches for you, then all the doors can be open. But if you, somebody says, no, this guy's a prick, there is just everything shut. And not only that, but because there's a network of friendships and alliances that stretch all across Europe, you know, that the enemy of my enemy is my friend type of scenario. So if you upset one person or one group, like doors will shut all across Europe to know that this, you know, this bell end is coming. Don't let him in. Um, but I felt that, you know, I'd, I'd got to that point where um, I could just about tell those stories and get access to people by, you know, not not <laughs> not being a bell end, I suppose, is one way of saying it. But like, you know, I just wanted to I wanted to. Uh, why? Why have you done that? You know, tell me the story about how you got into this and what the attraction is to it, because I was attracted to to the same things. And. And I think they, they, they picked up on that. And um, one, of, one of the chapters was about Ukraine because what was clear is that when you've got, organi you've got an organized subculture, youth subculture, 
right? And within the right circumstances, whether that is a political uprising, a revolution or political upheaval in that country, that this is an important constituency of like, you suddenly have thousands of organized, henched young men who know how to fight the police, who know how, because they do it week in, week in, week out. They know how to fight each other. They know how to deal with tear gas. They know police tactics. Whereas in a lot of uh, civil uprisings, you know, if you've got activists on the front line, they haven't got a clue about how to do any of this. And what you just kind of explained with the the large scale connections across borders, not going on social media, keeping it all hush hush, um, even with the street violence, they know how to deal with that. A lot of it's street politics as well. Like to be honest, it's the perfect foundation for a militant group. You know what I mean? It's absolutely. You know, and and. I mean, we'll talk about this a bit later, but a lot of politicians, especially in Eastern Europe, have worked that out as well and have used these groups in many respects as, as kind of street vigilantes to help further their own uh, political careers. So this is certainly the case in Poland, certainly the case in Hungary, definitely in Serbia, where I was living up until quite recently. So, yeah, it's, um, uh, you know, the, the first place I saw this really take action, and it was over a number of years, was, was in Egypt. And in Egypt, I saw how a group of guys, one of the, uh, Amadou Fahmi was, a, you know, started a group of vultures for Al-Akhli um, back in 2007. And I interviewed him for a story I did for The Guardian. But we always stayed in touch. And over the years, it, this group became literally 20,000 people strong. And they were fighting the police every week during the kind of the worst of the the Mubarak years. So when the Tahrir Square revolution came, Amaru and his guys and all the other ultra groups that then copied them were all in, in Tahrir Square. And these were the guys who were fighting the police. And they became known afterwards when, when the revolution uh, happened. They were known as kind of saviors of the revolution and they became kind of heroes until there was an incident called the Port Said massacre where 72 of them were, were killed, murdered essentially by rival ultras after a game in Port Said, but with the collusion of the state as a kind of, this was a, uh, a warning and also kind of a punishment for beating the police. And it was the beginning of the end really of the revolution. Um, and all these guys were ended up being, um, uh, you know, essentially... Uh, outlawed um, and Amru, you know, who's, he was one of the most inspirational people I've ever met. It, it turned out he was, his father was one of the most kind of connected people in Egypt, but he was like, he was bringing rich and poor because class cleavage is, is one of the main issues in, in Egypt. He was bringing rich and poor fans together, Christian, and I mean, there were even some brotherhood guys there, um, men and women as well. There were some women, and he brought them all together. And it turns out that his, his dad was like the uh, general secretary of the Confederation of African Football all this time we had to keep that on the down low and I had to keep his his uh, identity secret and eventually what happens when he's out when this is all outlawed he then becomes the general secretary when his dad retires of african football goes into african football to try and destroy all the corruption that he sees and takes an ultra mentality into it and within a year he's basically kicked out the job but he leaks a load of these documents that prove what's been going on and the president of caf ends up getting banned from football um for eight years unfortunately he died of cancer last year it was really tragic like he he, he just got married and um he had he's had a three-month-old daughter but you know you, you see what people say about ultras and about football fans and you see someone like Amin Fahmy and you think you know this is you know in the right circumstances this is a, a you know a, a, like you said a, a, like the platform almost for a militant group but also can can affect positive change sometimes negative change but it's an actor in conflict and it can't be ignored and 
in you, Turkey is another one uh, where you had the the Gezi Park protests. The ultras again came together. I mean, it's you know, there's there's a story behind that as well. But the the one that is the most relevance really to to direct conflict is Ukraine because you know uh, ultra groups and fighting firms from the main clubs end up playing this massive role in in Maidan. They end up becoming kind of allies almost with liberal activists, protectors of the liberal activists. And then even the most kind of ardent lefty activist would say this in in uh, in Ukraine. And then they end up becoming part of this fighting battalion Azov, which ends up, you know, playing a key role on the front line in in um, in eastern Ukraine. Well, yeah, let's um let's kind of go back to the Maidan. I, I remember I know exactly what you're talking about as well. This particularly right sector. Um, at yeah. the time, and there's a bit of confusion. Some people say they're called that because they're right wing. Now they definitely are right wing, but they weren't called that. They were called right sector because they were on the right sector of the Maidan, protecting you know the people that were not as adept at street fighting. But a lot of them came out of uh, football hooligan uh, or football ultra firms as well. Same as Azov. Um, maybe you can tell us about some of these uh, these ultra groups that eventually yeah. gave birth to you know Azov militants. Well, I'll, I'll tell this story through the guy I told the story through, who I found it was a very fascinating individual called uh, Sergei Filimanov. And he was essentially the leader of one of the big crews from uh, Dynamo Kiev. Um, and now Dynamo Kiev, the ultra group, you know, very, very right wing, a lot of racism involved there as well. And you see they, he had a group called the Radici, right, the relatives. And this was, you had the ultras group, and then you had this, these little break-off uh, fighting firms who would go off and do these uh, collar footballer matchups with other Ukrainian teams and with other uh, fighting crews in Poland and in and when I met I went to one of these um, these arranged fights they they are brutal absolutely brutal in fact the other side didn't turn up so it turned out to be a riot in the end in this kind of sub in this suburb of Stockholm and I ended up I mean this is how far in I'd got at that point that. Um, the other we'd met, it was supposed to be an 80 versus 80 fight in a, on a disused railway track. And the other side didn't turn up and we ended up, uh, this guy said, Oh yeah, come with me. And I thought, Oh yeah, well, let's see what happens. The other side, this is all organized fighting, right? It's going to be fine. But you know, they're not hurting anybody else except for each other. And then, no, they turn up in, in Solna, which is like a district outside uh, Stockholm and uh, go to start going to the pubs where they think these guys are drinking and just, they end up smashing everything up beating people i'm running along and the, eventually the police start chasing us and it's like at that point i'm like well what can i do i mean i'm i can't put my hand up i can't i haven't got a, like a release cord that says you know i'm a journalist i can leave now i'm in if i get caught i get arrested so i end up running with them and we managed to escape there's a helicopter in the sky there's like police vans everywhere tear gas getting fired um and you know i managed i managed to escape and it was it was pretty hairy stuff but it was seeing the violence up close i mean it's not you know, it's not frontline violence. It's not. It's not people getting shot in the head. But you know, it's still it's still pretty brutal kind of situation. And when you see that, you see, you know, these guys were saying, yeah, the Ukrainians they're the number one in the world, pretty much at this at this uh, at this type of fighting. And Sergei Filimonov was the, the the kind of the leader of this. And what when I was speaking to him about like 2013, that you know, there's a, there's a although they're obviously on the right, a lot of them are fascists, um, neo Nazis, that. There was a common enemy in Viktor Yanukovych, and there was a common enemy in Russian interference in the country. So, um, especially when it came to the Dynamo Kiev ultras and firms, and especially like Lviv, there was a kind of um, 
a kind of uh, an alliance between the clubs. Like I think it was uh, uh, Dnipro, uh, Dinamo Kiev, and and Lviv, and uh, some of the other clubs around there that were very much kind of pro-Ukrainian Ukrainian nationalists, and then much more pro-Russian uh, nationalists from Shakhtar Donetsk, because obviously that's in the east in the Donbass. Uh, Odessa and in, I think in Kharkiv as well. But what was interesting is that when the, when the kind of Maidan started, that all of those groups, even though some of them were quite pro-Russian, they ended up uh, joining together uh, to try to get rid of to, to to help within within the Maidans in their own separate squares in their own cities to to overthrow Yanukovych as well. And so they would turn up to these to these marches, and again. They were the they were the people who knew how to deal with tear gas. They knew how to deal with, um, you know, the, the street thugs who were kind of hired by the government. They knew exactly what the police were doing, whereas a lot of the activists didn't really know what they were doing, and they needed that kind of protection. And so you, know, you mentioned right sector. I mean, one of the key figures here is Andrei Biletsky, who was the commander of Azov. Um, again. I don't think it, I don't think we're saying anything too um, uh, legal here, saying that he was a neo-Nazi. Oh yeah, he he ran um Patriot of Ukraine was openly far right, yeah. Open open far right, and then the Social Nationalist Assembly, and then it, that that kind of evolves into right sector, um, and then he becomes you know the the the, um, uh, the commander of the Azov Battalion, and and what happens is that you know Maidan Maidan happens, and all these groups. Ukrainian ultras from all across the country they they descend on on Maidan and they you know they they play they play this really important role you know they play a role that I'd seen in other revolutions and other civil conflicts which was ha- knowing how to fight and teaching other people how to fight and that's certainly Sergei Filimanov's experience of fighting on the front lines but when Yanukovych eventually leaves then it's like what next what do we do where where do we go and it's Beletsky who starts this or, or who becomes the you know the, the commander of Azov, who starts recruiting uh, guys from the Akola footballer scene. And what was interesting, there's a brilliant um, uh, Dima. The, the 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 I think you put me in touch with Dima yeah, originally. Man, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the you know he made a he made a film in Ukraine for Ukrainian television about about the ultras, and, and there's an interview with Beletsky in it. And and you know he says. You know, I I had to bring together this this uh, because going back a little bit, Ukrainian the Ukrainian army was a shambles. You know, it'd been massively underfunded for years. I mean, it, on purposely massively underfunded, and you know, filleted by corruption. Corruption is the number one issue in in Ukrainian society, other than the war that's going on at the moment, and it's still going on in the east. And you know, he's like, you know, essentially a law was changed by Arsen Avakov, who's this kind of almost like a far right Svengali's the Ministry of the Interior, but he 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 began this process of having um, you know these militias begun to be formed, and you know Azov was perhaps the best known, and Biletsky started recruiting from the Okola footballer scene people like Sergei Filimanov and and many many others, and in this interview he says you know there's about sixty five percent of Azov came from Okola footballer came from the ultras and firms, and the reason they were ready straight away to be organized, to be trained and to be fought was because they'd already been doing that off their own back to fight each other over the past four or five years. And so, um, and it was interesting that he said that the biggest issue that he had within uh, Azov in the beginning, before whilst he was training everybody, was having to overcome this divide 
between like this, you know, on the one hand, there was the allies of Lviv, Dnipro and, uh, and Dinamo Kiev. And on the other side, the Odessa, Kharkiv and, um, and, and Shakhtar Donetsk. So he had to kind of overcome that. So these football rivalry, football rivalries, you know, these are guys that would, you know, they, they would, you know, fight each other, you know, I mean, bloody deaths. I mean, this is like, this is a hatred. And so overcoming that barrier was almost <laughs> bigger than overcoming, like the fact that nobody had any shoes or guns or bullets or anything. You know, the first thing you needed to get is unity. And so they, they kind of came together and you can see the success of it really, because whilst, the Ukraine, I mean, you saw it firsthand. The Ukrainian army was, you know, routed almost everywhere. But at, at Mariupol, there was a successful defense of the city, which was absolutely vital for Ukraine to keep any kind of foothold in the Donbass. I mean, if they'd lost Mariupol because it's a massive steelworks, it's a, it's a port, it's the access really to, uh, to the Sea of Azov. And so um, they proved themselves there to be a successful fighting force. And it wasn't just the um, fighting either. It was supply lines. Because they were so badly prepared, the ultras that didn't go, you know, the, 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 or guys who were in ultra groups and not in the fighting firms, because there's a network of communication and, and allies... Um, they started, there's a, there's an organization called, um, Narodny Til, which was like kind of the national home front that was, it was, it was gathering supplies and these ultras and, you know, a lot of them are capos from the ultra groups were, if they weren't fighting, they were getting, they were uh, procuring vehicles from Europe. Like they told me this one guy was telling me that I interviewed, he'd, he'd, um, he'd managed to get a load <laughs> procuring. of Procuring. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't, I'm not, he didn't. I'm not sure. I'm not sure anyone was stealing them on spec, but he certainly was getting pretty. I mean, also a lot of them were pretty old, shitty, like Land Rovers, for instance, um, and then using what they could to then reinforce them to put some armor on it, and then sending them down to the front line, getting guns, saying that they were for hunting, sending those down to the front line, getting shoes. Uh, the biggest thing that they were doing was getting uh, Chinese-made, really cheap Chinese-made drones, and getting them down to the front line as well. So that they at least could see artillery positions and what was going on there. So, so all the, all this was done through the networks already created by the football ultra scene, basically. Exactly, exactly, and Fascinating. you know, and because it's you know because it's so organised, and you know, it's you know, ultra groups certainly not in in this part of the world. I mean, generally, especially in Italy as well, these aren't these aren't democracies. You know, there is a capo, there's a guy at the top and, you know, he has his lieutenants underneath and, you know, it's a very strict hierarchy. So things things get done, you know, very quickly. And and so the football scene there plays its role in, you know, this battle and obviously building the myth of the ultras. I mean, if you go and speak to any activist there, they'll say, yeah, do you know what? These guys, you know, they did play their role in Maidan and they did go and fight and volunteer and risk their lives. And many of them did die. Um, but you know, that myth obviously then becomes something that has been used, especially by what, what Azov then becomes next as, as a kind of a myth that's been built around, about, around, around this group of people. Yeah, there, there is this, there's also like some misconceptions around Azov, which, you know, Azov will say without us, the war would have, you know, everybody would have died. We would have lost Ukraine. They're at, they've actually not been in anywhere near as many battles as they make out you know but they certainly were effective in the ones that they were in um but yeah unfortunately now like you know you can't ignore the kind of far-right element to it it has become its own beast it has and th that's definitely true i mean there's i mean even Filimonov, 
himself proves himself to be a great fighter, but he, I can't remember, is a battle, is it Ilivosk, which is the, the meat grinder. Ilivosk, yeah, yes. yeah, the, the meat grinder, you know, where, I mean, no one really knows, but it could be anything up to a thousand Ukrainian troops were perhaps massacred, you know, having retreat, having, having basically, you know, surrendered and, and retreated. And he was part of that, you know, he, he retreated, he was injured in it. And that's why um, he, he was then, you know, sent back and started life, you know, civvy life after that. So there, you know, there was, there, there were lots of defeats, but I think you can, you can say, and you can see it when you go to Mariupol today. I mean, this is, this was, you know, two years ago when I went, but you know, there was, there is still a, you know, an appreciation for Azov there. Um, and I think they, you know, they they probably did have a have an effect in in that one single battle. But the myth of it has been has been has certainly been built up. And what's what's most interesting actually is kind of what happens next because the story of what happens to Filimanov is you know very fascinating because he's quite a you can you know find him on on Instagram right. He's a, he's a, he's a really handsome guy. He's got loads of tats over him. Some of them extremely dubious in terms of whether they're far right or not. Um, I mean, he's not quite as like his right hand man had literally two swastikas tattooed behind his ear. So I mean, there's no, there's no getting around that. I mean, there's no, you can't misinterpret that. Um, but you know, and but you know, what's he's obviously he's very intelligent. He's very um, he's a good organizer and he's a good orator. And so the next step after a lot of these fighters then and ultras get back is they don't really, I mean, they do go back a little bit into the ultra scene, but they've obviously seen bigger battles and there's now been this truce behind the groups that were formerly fighting. And so he becomes kind of the lead organizer for uh, the national Corps, which becomes the, the political party that emerges out of, out of Azov with Biletsky becomes the, the head um, I mean, he'd already been in Parliament by then for a few years. As, I think he was there as the right sector uh, MP, but the, then he becomes head of the National Corps. And it was clear to me when I met him that he was being groomed for, for political power because he was, you know, he's a smart guy. But what was interesting is that when I met him, the way he wasn't, you know, fighting anymore on the front lines, but he was involved in some pretty direct uh, activism. So one of the things that I followed him around for a few weeks was obviously corruption is one of the biggest issues. So they would they would turn up at the building sites of oligarchs who they said would have, have stolen that land to build something, whatever. And they would they would just swarm it and beat up all the, you know, the security that had been hired there by other oligarchs. Um, there were they would campaign on behalf of there was a, a, a Katerina Hanzuk who was a activist from the city of Kurzan who she was an anti-corruption activist uh, liberal anti-corruption activist and she was murdered essentially assassinated through acid somebody poured face, acid yeah and and it took her months and months to die uh, it's the most horrible way I mean awesome. she, she she posted a picture on social media it was shortly before she died and it was it was horrific but they were campaigning so when I when I met him the first time he was outside and you could tell when they turn up at protests because they'd bring flares right who brings flares out apart from ultras and football fans like uh, maybe sailors but they you know they, they definitely <laughs> weren't saying they were you know so they turn up with these you know and with big barriers saying we're not going to stop until we get justice for Hanzuk right because they saw I mean, a, a cynic would say that they were using issues like wedge issues. That they knew that, uh, or not wedge issues, but the exact opposite, unifying issues that would 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 get 
people on board and to soften their image. But when you talk, when I talked to him, he, you know, I think he, I think he believed it. You know, he, this is like this is a, a disgrace that this has ha this happened to her, and we might not be uh, political, uh, you know, on the same side. But this is, you know, we are against corruption, and so we're on the same side in that respect. So he was definitely. Um, um, uh, you know, so he was, he was, he, you know, he was campaigning there. Lots of other kind of, kind of far righty type, oh, like not far righty, but kind of very nationalist concerns, like Ukrainian language, and there's a lot of uh, like going out and uh, capturing and doing citizens arrests on people who they'd they thought had had, had uh, volunteered for militias on the Russian side, who they found and then just bring back to the. Uh, you know, to police officers to be arrested. So he was involved in this, yeah, this wider range of, of, of direct political action. And, you know, I mean, I found him, I mean, there's, there's no doubt that the people around him um, and perhaps even him himself were, were, were it was certainly ultra nationalists. Some of them were definitely neo-Nazis. His was a bit ambiguous. And I think that's the thing to understand with Ukraine is that it's, it's just it's one of the most complicated places to understand the level of ambiguity. It is. And it's hard to even talk about because I've been there so many times and I do understand that, like, there is a difference between the ultra nationalists not saying, oh, that's great. I love ultra nationalism. But there is a there is a difference between them and the actual neo-Nazis. However, often the ultra nationalists might say, well, I don't like neo-Nazism, but I don't mind. I'll have this guy in my battalion, no problem. It's weird. It's just like this very fucking strange disconnect. Um, it's very unfortunate, but it's it's Eastern Europe. I mean, what the fuck do people expect? You know, it's very wild, very raw out there still. It's, um, you know, the, I mean, the far right has a big constituency. I mean, I certainly know that from being from being Polish. I lived in Hungary for a while, lived in Serbia for a while. Um, spent a long time in, in Ukraine as well. So you can see how the political culture... And a lot, and a lot of people say, well, it, it, uh, you know, it's not... The far right isn't something to worry about Ukraine because, you know, they, they the far right gets smashed at, at the elections. Um, you know, I mean, at the last Beletsky's out of parliament now because in 2019, there was a, there was a kind of a far right um, unity movement that kind of came together as a block to try and get over 5% of the vote to get into parliament. Uh, but they got like one, one and a half percent. But I think the, the problem is that a lot of those, a lot of those policies and views have also been adopted by the mainstream, which kind of has also made them a bit more redundant. Um, and it is as a, as a street movement. Sometimes when you see some of these groups and how they operate, you know, it's, it's a terrifying number of very organized people that, that, if there was some kind of civil disobedience in the future, you know, what side would they be on now? I don't think you could, I don't think you could say. So I, I think as well, people um, kind of forget the idea that a lot of these far right groups are fascists. So they're not going to wait to take the votes. And some of these fascists have literally whole columns of tanks. I think Azov might have two columns of tanks now. Now, I'm not saying that Azov is going to come out and overthrow the government, but like they could <laughs> like you know what i mean they have the firepower now it's not healthy for a democratic society to have large groups of militias armed with extremist views uh, you know and um and this is one of the things that comes out i think later on in 1312 because i, fo I follow um you know uh, Filimonov's story and he, he eventually he kind of falls out with the national court and he falls out with beletsky in fact he gets beaten up by a group of people connected to Beletsky because um, they they fall out over. I don't know if you've come across the is it Sergei uh, Sterenko, the guy 
again, another right sector guy in Odessa who's become a bit of a, a, a core celeb for, for ultra-nationalists because um, he's, he's, again, focusing on corruption as an activist now in, in Odessa, where he's from. Yeah, he's in prison right now, isn't he? Yeah, I think they've released him, but he's about to... It's, so the original charge was, I think, something to do with a big protest around, around the president, but the big charge is that, he's, that he murdered somebody because uh, it, there's been three attempts to get on his life, and in one of those attempts, he managed to kill one of the attackers. And so they, uh, his supporters see it as a politically motivated um, attack, uh, you know, corrupt oligarchs paying people to do that, uh, who are in league with the government. This is their their view. And then, so uh, Filimonov was was turning up and organising a lot of protests around this. And I think that for some reason that upset Beletsky in that area of there was some there was some somehow affected his interests. And so there was a, there was a big falling out between between them. And so now, you know, Filimonov has kind of set up this kind of I don't know what you call it, kind of a kind of protest school where he's teaching people how to kind of fight against kind of the police and how to fight against, uh, it's called, well, that, that and this group called Honor, which is a kind of, I don't know, kind of, a, kind of a hooligan t-shirt graffiti firm. I don't, I'm not really sure how to describe it. But um, yeah, he's got this, you know, and one of the most interesting things was I remember seeing on the news about Hong Kong back in 2019, I think it was, when, you know, the, the, they were still fighting to try to prevent this security law. And who do I see in the crowd? I see him and all his crew who have turned up there. Essentially, they said that they were tourists, but, you know, maybe they were there, maybe just to help out a little bit. Uh, because, you know, they're obviously they're staunch anti-communists, as you'd expect. Um, and then what happens is that their their appearance there becomes the main news item. I think it's on the, the main Channel One program in Russia where they are then used as proof that Maidan was a, you know, CIA uh, fermented colour revolution by fascists. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what actually happened was they turned up, were like, wow, these guys are pretty well organised. A load of Hong Kongers who don't even know what the fuck is going on in Ukraine went, oh, cool, some guys from Ukraine came to, you know, pay their respects to us. And they went, yeah, hi. And they took some photos and then all these fucking tankies and then Russian supporters were like, see, you know, it's yeah. a fascist junta. It's fucking ridiculous. So, yeah, so he is quite interesting. So I've, I've kept in contact with him because he's still, he's still doing that, you know, um, and trying to forge a different path, his own kind of activist network outside of the traditional kind of far right ecosystem. Which which fascinates me. It fascinates me that he that he does that, and it fascinates me about whether because some of the questions I ask about is like, you know, if you get yourself a, a swastika tattoo at nineteen, like what happens when you're thirty? You know, people change. People people change their political views. I mean, I have. Uh, other people have, and and that's why you know I think when when people read one three one two, it's often he's the one kind of complex difficult to understand but fascinating people that that you read about and that that i met and you know i keep i keep abreast of what he's up to and i'm i'm sure i'll see him next time i'm in i'm in, uh, I'm in kiev once well now i've got my second jab i can travel a bit more but uh you know and 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 this is the thing is with with a book like this and with the people that you meet i mean there's i mean i met quite a few far-right figures um uh fabrizio piscitelli which is one one guy i met in italy who's the lead ultra their capo at Lazio, like one of the most famous figures in the world. And I mean, he ended up getting assassinated about three months after we spoke because he was also heavily involved in the underworld, um, in the drug trade. And he just got out of prison for, 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 you know, big, after being involved in a big drug bust there. So, 
um, these are these aren't a lot of characters who you're necessarily warm to, but they are complex and they exist they exist out there. And I'd rather we knew that they did and why they did and what their you know what the nuances are, rather than just just say yeah these are just terrible people and that's it because that's not how the world is. Well, yeah, it's very interesting as well, I think, looking at, like, the organisational point of view, like you said. I think Ukraine is the most interesting because it's one where it kind of went all the way. Like, the first time I heard this this kind of ultras formulating um, kind of cells to fight the police was, like you mentioned earlier, Egypt. But as we know, they were kind of smashed and, you know, the revolution failed badly. It went went very you know wrong if you like um but with ukraine it's like well they actually managed to you know fully push this through um and now there are you know literally former ultras ultra groups that are now they have their own battalions you know i'm looking at this website now ultras uh, tifo and yeah. there are so many pictures of Ukraine soldiers and also like militia fighters holding up flags for, for you know for their teams. I mean, there's like 20 plus here. Some on the on the on the Russian side as well. You know, it seems that a lot of Russian ultras actually are fighting for the separatists as well. It's very interesting. Yeah, there's there's a kind of because um, I, mean, I suppose in a way it's all far right, but there's there's kind of an interesting connection as well to Belarus because. There was a big crackdown on ultras in Belarus in 2014, 2015, because a lot of guys from Belarus went over to show solidarity with the Ukrainian ultras during Maidan. And, um, you know, the powers that be saw that as something dangerous. They recognized that this was a powerful constituency. And what's interesting, especially in Russia, I mean, Putin and or maybe not Putin directly, but certainly... Um, you know, the network of people that keep him in power recognize keeping the far right and especially football firms uh, on side is a very, you know, it's a very powerful. I mean, the reason why those groups, uh, those leaders and those fighters from uh, hooligan firms in Russia end up in Marseille in 2016 in the first place is, is basically on government funded airplanes. You know, they are they are given money to go there. And when when it happens, I mean, Putin himself said something along the lines of like, well, you'd have thought with so many Englishmen there, they'd have been able to put up a fight or something like that. Like it was he was smirking like he loved it. So, it, you know, you can tell that, you know, the people in power, like they're addicted to football. They're addicted to to the crowd. It's just, it presses all the same buttons, you know. And, you know, I mentioned this a couple of times. I mean, I lived in Serbia. And so you, you can see there's a there's a massive scandal that just that happened uh, a few months ago about um, the leader of the partisan, one of the partisan Belgrade ultra firms was basically uh, he was arrested suddenly and they they found videos that he'd been beheading people and been involved in in all sorts of um, kind of the Montenegrin drug trade and all that but they were all connected to the government they were all everyone knew what they were doing but they were essentially kept kept people that were that were useful in times of strife so if there was a gay pride march that needed to be smashed up because you know these guys are religious conservatives you know, these are the guys that would be sent to do it. If there was, I remember in 2008, there was a, uh, I think the US embassy, when Kosovo declared independence it, unilaterally, like the, you know, the, the coalition of these groups ended up going and, you know, kicking <laughs> kicking the shit out of the US embassy. I think they even got in. I think they got in. I think one guy was killed inside the, the US embassy. And it's pretty, it's pretty hard to breach a, an American embassy anywhere in the world, pretty much. I mean, so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the organization of it. And, the politicians have worked out how to utilize it, but it's, it's in the right conditions. Um, there's no reason why that that couldn't happen again. Absolutely. 
Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating, man. And I, I do think, though, I will say, like, politics aside, obviously, disclaimer, I think anyone that listens to Popular Front knows that I and we fucking hate fascists. But all, all the politics aside, I think the idea of the football ultras is actually a really excellent concept and, like, a really good thing for young men and women to have a community. If you look at the, um, the Green Brigade, you know, Celtic supporters... They've literally, you know, helped out the club by getting rid of managers and such, you know, and welcoming in new players. And especially as well, you mentioned um, St. Pauli. You know, I've been to that stadium. They're fucking amazing things that they do. Yeah, They're yeah, keeping, right? Like, keep, but they keep the club for the people. And now if you look at the state of like, you know, premiership football, I don't even like football because I can't be bothered with it. It's like, it just seems like a, another commercial thing to me now. But I think the ultras really keep the kind of spirit of, uh, of football alive, you know? Well, look, it, yeah, it's me look, it's messy, right? And it, what, the way I've always looked at it is that ultra groups reflect their constituency, right? So like football stadiums reflect because they're in the community. So the, 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 the curve, right? The place where the ultras stand, you know, reflects pretty much the community they're from. And that's usually a kind of working class, young, and it's a young person's game, usually a working class male kind of constituency. And so one of the examples I use is, um, you know, in, in Italy in the 1970s, you know, you had this almost a civil war going on. You know, the years of lead where you had far left and far right activists kind of bombing each other, murdering each other, kidnapping former prime ministers and killing them, you know, like bombings going on. Like I think the Bologna train bombing and almost 100 people were killed. You know, this is, it was it was it was extremist. And so in the center of Rome, where it was, it was kind of the heart of the support for the Communist Party um, in, in the city, that's where the supporters from Roma came from. So there ultra groups were all left wing. They have got names like the Fedayeen, for instance, which came, you know, from the from the political guerrilla, uh, from the Palestinian guerrilla movement. So um, what happens is Italy changes. So over time, Italy becomes much more right wing. Um, Rome becomes, the inner cities of Rome become much more right wing. And then, you know, essentially the Roma ultras become, you know, far right. Like La Latio ultras had always been far right, but Rome changed and all the other curves around Italy, they changed in the same way. But if you look at Germany, I mean, you, you touched on on Hamburg there and, and St. Pauli, but again, it reflects th their society. So you see so much left-wing activism, especially in, in more Western and, and in the big cities. Um, you've got uh, ultras at Bayern Munich campaigning against uh, Qatar, sponsoring their club and against the World Cup and against slavery, uh, what they say, slavery in, in Qatar. There, You've got, I mean, when I last went to the Milan tour to watch St. Pauli play, they were playing a... Uh, like it was the the kind of refugee crisis was in full swing. And I think it was just before, or I think it might be just after Merkel allowed, I think a million people to cross over the border. And what, you know, in, especially in Eastern Germany, where it's much more right wing, uh, you know, uh, ultra groups, you know, they're singing about, you know, um, Merkel veg, Merkel, Merkel must go, Merkel must go. Whereas there, they were inviting, like the ultra St. Pauli were, were inviting Syrian refugees from the camps, going and picking them up and bringing them to the stadium so they had a day out and watched the football with them. That's beautiful. And they had a couple of Syrians who ended up jo joining them, becoming ultras with them. You know, I was there, I spoke to these, one of these guys. That's absolutely brilliant. That's what football should be about. You exactly, know? you know, and it was, so you see that and even 
when you have left wing and right wing, there's certain issues that they can agree on, like against the co- the commercialisation of football, uh, high ticket prices. Um, it's like having televised games on a Monday night because if you're a working person, you can't travel from one end of Germany to the next. You've got to take a day off and you can't afford it. So, you know, they campaigned against that and they were successful. They changed, you know, the FA had to back down. The league had to back down time and time and time again. Um, so, yeah, there are there is a lot of st- stories of... Um, the, the right and the far right and ultra movements, but it is a, you know, it's, it's a fascinating and diverse movement. Like you said, green brigade pro Palestinian, um, you know, d- definitely, definitely say on the left, left wing. And, and you, you know, you, you have groups, I mean, Atalanta in, in Bergamo who, I mean, I'd say probably more apolitical, but certainly again, when I met the leader there, Il Boccia, who's a guy who's been banned from the stadiums pretty much for 25 years. But this is a guy who says, you know, we, we go out and we organize things for, for recovering for drug addicts and recovering drug addicts and raise money for them, help them get jobs, you know? And this is a guy who's absolutely saw that ultra groups help the community first and foremost and said he didn't, because a lot of the far right ultra groups end up kind of, being co-opted by the mafia in many respects as a, as a way to kind of extort money out of out of the club. But this guy was like, we're not going to take a penny out of the club. We don't take a penny out of the club. Everything we put into our materials to make a banner or to help people in, in our city. And they organise pretty much the biggest uh, festival in, in Bergamo, which which they, you know, thousands of people turn up to and it's like a massive thing. I mean, Bergamo is quite a posh place now, you know. Um, and so, yeah, you've, you've got this. It's it's not it's not what people think it is. I know we've just spent um, most of the past hour talking about the far right and neo-Nazis and, and, and all the rest and everyone in between in Ukraine. But um, it, there, there's, there's, there's a wide story of, of activism and civil disobedience that finds its roots on, on football terraces. And I... You know, to be honest, I'm amazed no one had written a book about it before, pretty much. Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting way for like a kind of grassroots community to introduce a kind of, you know, autonomous direct democracy into something they believe in without it having to be, you know, hashtag ACAB, hashtag I'm a part of this group. Hashtag, it's more it's more real, it's more grassroots, I think, when it comes from the football ultras rather than like, you know, what I consider kind of bandwagoning, trendy politics right now. And it, it, it's been around for ages as well, right? Yeah, so like, it, you know, its roots are in, in, again, the years of lead in the late 60s. Um, the first group comes out of Milan. And again, the, the years of lead shape, shape the ultra movement. And it's essentially the, the kind of all the paraphernalia that you see, the banners, you know, climactic displays that you see at political protests end up on the, on the, on the terraces. And, then, and that sets the, the kind of aesthetic for ultras all around the world. So wherever you went, if you go to like, Probably the there's quite a few scary moments in the book. I mean, there's, there was one I literally I don't know if you you probably have a story about the moment that you thought you were going to die, which is probably much scarier than mine. But there was a moment where I was chased down this the side of an Indonesian highway by by a bunch of Persib Bandung ultras with with machetes, and it was it was absolutely one of the most terrifying experiences of my life. I managed to escape by by the skin of our teeth. Fucking machetes, machetes. They had there were two groups of machetes because um, that's probably the most violent ultra scene in the world right now is in is in Indonesia. And when you go, you know the, the names of the groups are like um, a Brigata Curva Sud. You know it's Italian. They call the top guy the capo. So they're taking on the old kind of culture. So they've taken so they've taken the kind of Italian. Um, vibe and aesthetic and but the, the the fashion is like definitely like football casual like 90s 90s English football casual right so you go outside and you'll see like 
you know, like Millwall tops, you'd see like badges with West Ham hammers. You see the old uh, British uh, British Rail symbol. Oh, that's cool. Because the intercity firm used to use that because that's how they would travel between cities for, to fight. And this was in, this wasn't even Jakarta. This was in like, like a, oh God, what, uh, where was it? It was like in the far southeast of, of Java. And so it tells you how, First of all, how attractive that is to young people. And I think you're hitting that on the head there, that this isn't hashtag activism. I mean, they go against that. What in real life do young, where do young people get together in big numbers in, in a cultural way like that? Like you've got online gaming, you know, of course, it's completely separate. But like as a, as a community, that is, once you have that together, it's a very, very strong bond that you make with people. And that's one of the things that is 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 clear that when you meet, ultra groups and one one guy i met from uh, an ultra group from verda bremen again another left-wing group told me that this is why it should be for young people because you're testing the barriers of what you can and can't get away with you're testing yourself you're testing society and i thought that was a, that was a brilliant way to put it i mean of course some people stay in it too long but usually when you're in your 30s you're, you're too old for it um i don't think i could have written this book in five years time i think i would have you know, I think mean, probably would have been too too old and uh, would have stuck out too much. But that was a great way to see it. I think that this is a youth culture that you know teaches people how far they can push it, and I don't think that's an unhealthy thing. No, I don't either. Not at all. And also, you know, you see these clubs. I, I've seen people online, you know, season ticket holders for I don't know fucking manual whatever, moaning about ultra groups interfering with the clubs and I just think like what are you talking about like that's what they're meant yeah. to do like these people are shafting you you know like one of the best situations I've ever been in I went to watch Wigan away like my best friend is from Wigan and a friend of ours um, she she was over from Australia so we were like fuck it let's take her to a football match and we went to Wigan away in like South London and the Wigan fans we stood in the stands and the Wigan fans started chanting we're shit and we know we are <laughs> I just thought like that is Absolutely brilliant. That to me was like the essence of proper football. How many of them were there? Because there are not many Wigan fans that turn up for home games. <laughs> there was about 10 of them maybe, but it was quite impressive. Because well, what's, what's interesting is that like, there's not, there's not a chapter in the book about England because we didn't really have a, a, an ultras movement because our indigenous movement, like in Brazil, they have the Torcida Organizadas, which again... A lot of them be co-opted by organized crime. Uh, the Ballas Bravas in Argentina and in, in Colombia and the rest of South America. But in Argentina, that's quite a frightening scene as well. And a lot of these have been, you know, um, cartels are kind of involved in a lot of them as well. Um, but it, our indigenous kind of fang thing was, you know, the casual movement, the hooligan movement. And, you know, in the 80s, it, that, that almost destroys football. And then you have, which, by the way, has nothing to do with hooliganism. It was down to the police um, is, is Hillsborough. But, you know, what that, that eventually leads to is, is a, a type of reform in English football that changes the stadiums, changes the type of person that goes to football and essentially ends... The, the way that English football fans are policed is disgusting. You know, it's like... I remember going to a West Ham Leicester away and, you know, the, 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 the coach stops about 20 miles outside of Leicester. You're taken off, you're searched... You can't buy any booze at the, at the uh, petrol station. You get taken back. You're told you're not allowed to get off the coach. You've got to go straight into the, the stadium. Like, you're told you can't go into Leicester. Like, you're prevented from, like, you're travelling, right? And if you if you cause an offence, they deem an offence. Whilst whilst the football fan, then you are treated more harshly for it. And you can be um, have your part, passport taken. You can be restricted from your movements, travelling abroad. Um 
And this all comes out of the reforms from the, from the 1990s, which turns the Premier League into this very middle class, uh, very uh, kind of wealthy game. But what it means is there's no space within like top level football clubs, really, for that type of ultra organising. You can't like if you turned up with a if you turned up with a flair in an English <laughs> Premier League game, like I reckon, I reckon you, I reckon you might get beaten to death by the police. Like they wouldn't know what to do. What the fucking turn up the flair? Like it, it's just so anathema to have that kind of um, or even like political banners messages on that. Everything's got to be pre-approved. So the control within English football stadiums is such that it's impossible for a kind of grassroots political culture to to set. I mean, Scotland is slightly different, and uh, you know the Green Brigade, Green Brigade is slightly different. I, but it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, one of the, my favourite chapters in the book, and you know, this is on the exact opposite end of the scale to the to the kind of far right in Eastern Europe. Was I went to LAFC, which is like a brand new football club in MLS in LA. You know, and they had a group. I mean, it's very, it very Latino character. You know, they had female capos, which is the, fir- the first time I've ever seen women in the cages leading the songs. You know, they had the day I was there. It was an LGBT uh, day, and they had like their tifo, their big choreography was a massive Freddie Mercury being winched up whilst they sang "We Will We Will Rock You." Right? <laughs> I they, like that. They had a um, they had a uh, <laughs> they had one ultra group, which was a pro weed ultra group. Uh, what do they call it? Is it the 40? What's that number? That's the weed number. 40. Um, oh, 420. 420. So it's the 420, right? And it was just, they were just stoned. We can't let Americans have everything, though, you know, because they do stuff like this. <laughs> they do stuff like that. But it is, you know, and you went there and I just thought, you know, like a lot of people would say that's very plastic, but a lot of people would say that about German football as well. It's a bit plastic, but it just shows you that, and they called themselves ultras. They had like, they, you know, again, you know, there was there was league approved pyro, which I found was the most like they weren't allowed to bring their own smoke, but there was a smoke machine that the, the league approved that was turned on, but not too much. I think there was only allowed on uh, for three goals. That's it. After that, they weren't allowed to have anything. So it was completely controlled. But I tell you what, compared to an experience in an English football stadium, um, it was it was drinking it for one. So it was a much better experience. But I, mean, I guess what I wanted to finish on was the idea that. Um, that in England, where you find ultra culture now, other than in Scotland, is at grassroots clubs. So there's like Clapton, for instance, in London. Clapton, yeah, yeah. Again, like you have you have ultra groups where they are allowed where they're allowed to have some freedom to exist and build an identity and a network for themselves, which then connects to other like minded uh, groups all across Europe and around the world. Um, that's where it is. So it's 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 not in the Premier League. It's in the fifth, sixth, seventh division that you'll find it, and so. You know, a lot of people are finding much more freedom. And even though the football isn't as good, when's it always been about football? It's about tribalism. And it's about, I mean, I don't I don't support West Ham because they're the best team in the country. It's because my dad supported West Ham and because my mates supported West Ham. And it's about being part of a club and a tribe. And and, and that's what people are discovering that, you, you know, that you can find that in England, but just, just a bit further down the pyramid. I mean, this is a long way from conflict journalism, but, you know... <laughs> Well, there's, there's, I think the sort of young men that end up fighting um, each other in woods in Eastern Europe um, to feel something, <laughs> I guess, are often, but they, you know, whether they realise it or not, are the same kind of lads in the Middle East that end up having to fight because there's a war has come to their doorstep or ex-Western countries dropped a bomb on their roof or whatever, you know, it's young men need something, you know, I'm not saying they need war, but I mean, like, I, I think the kind of ultra scene Unfortunately, there's a lot of bad politics or whatever in it, but I do think the ultra scene is quite a healthy place for young men to kind of get that out, you know. 
it's a brotherhood, you know, and people find that in, in lots of other places, that connection with other humans, which in, in the atomized world that we live in is becoming rarer and rarer and that, that they can still have that. And I think you're right. It's the same, same part of the brain that, you know, makes you a you know, biker or it makes, makes you want to be like really into death metal. You know, it's something it's, it's, and this is, this is a very physical, physical world where you are, you're touching people, you're, you're in touch with people. And you know, that is, that's really rare. Yeah, man, definitely. Um, is there anything else you want to say before we wrap this up? Um, please buy my book, uh, <laughs> 1312 Among the Ultras. I don't know, is that a bit... That's no, a totally promote it, man. It's, it's a great book, promote it, 100%. Um, so, um, so yeah, uh, yeah, 1312. It's, it's, the paperback version is out now uh, with Penguin. And I think you can get it in the US as well. Um, yeah, it was out in June, so you can get it in the US as well. And there's there's a German there's a German version as well and a Polish version a Japanese version coming out so I don't know if anyone's any of your listeners are in Japan but there's one coming out this month uh, we've got a few actually yeah yeah um, what's your Twitter and all that mate where can people get hold of you of you if they want to ask any more questions about all this yeah Twitter is uh, at James Piotr so J A M E S P I O T R and I'm yeah that's what you find. brilliant thank you very much mate cheers. That was journalist James Montague speaking about the various ways in which football ultras have helped and aided uprisings and wars across the world, all the way from Ukraine to Egypt and more. If you like what we're doing, uh, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popular front remember we do not accept money from large-scale corporate investment or anything like that everything we do here is grassroots if you want to support us you get bonus content subscribe patreon.com slash popular front or if you want you can donate to us or talk about maybe some kind of deal i don't know go to uh, www.popularfront.co slash support or buy our merchandise the website is popularfront.com Dot shop now let's talk about merchandise for a minute so if you're on our social medias and whatever um you will have seen that we did a free britney t-shirt now you might be thinking why the fuck would a media collective platform about war and conflict give a shit about this britney spears thing well if there's anything we definitely hate a popular front it is authoritarianism of any stripe we hate it we don't like it fuck it it's horrible it's the worst thing so when I was reading about this Britney Spears thing, I was like, this is fucking awful um, and very bad. But luckily, she can kind of, you know, afford to live, can afford to fight the case still. Um, but there are a lot of women that are in, you know, situations where there's perhaps an authoritarian um, boot over their head and they can't get out of it. So we said, you know what, let's make this uh, free Britney Spears t-shirt and we will donate 100% of the profits to the National Women's Law Center. Um, they're a charity that basically helps women in underprivileged um, situations with various different legal situations, helping them get out of bad situations. If you don't think that's a good cause, fuck you, basically. We think it's a good cause. Um, so yeah, NWLC, we raised about $10,000. And then the company we used to print these t-shirts, it was a really cool t-shirt, Britney Spears and the Balaclava. It says, authoritarianism is toxic, free Britney, popular front. 
The print company said, nah, that's a screenshot from a video of Britney Spears. We're, we're not going to print it now, despite the fact we just raised all of this money for charity. So I said, all right, fuck it. So we raised the money. Um, we donated the money anyway. But basically that left me with, obviously, we, I have to pay 100% of the profits went towards it, but I still have to pay for the shirts. So that was about £9,000 or something like that that this company owed me this print shop, which was a fucking nightmare. Eventually we got it back, um, severed tie, ties with them. The company's Printful, uh, Printful, 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 I don't know. Printful, fuck you. Um, you're an absolute piece of shit company. Fuck you from Popular Front. You literally tried to derail a fucking charity drive to help women in need because of some stupid fucking copyright issue. And when I spoke to a lawyer, they said it is free use by an absolute fucking mile and would get laughed out of court. Basically, you're just too scared. You fucking covered your own asses and tried to derail our charity drive. But it's not been derailed because um, we've spoken to a, another print shop, a few different print companies uh, in the US. Uh, the free Britney t-shirt is going to be printed within the next few weeks and it will be delivered all over the US. Don't worry, it's coming. Um, I haven't found a good um, European print shop that will print them and deliver them for us because, you know, we sold like a load of them. I can't fucking just, you know, hand deliver them all. It's a fucking nightmare. It's a madness. So not found the European side of it yet, but the US one where the majority of the orders came from, the t-shirt is coming. Give it a few weeks, maybe months. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you know, it was a charity thing. All of the money has been already donated to charity. We put that on the Instagram, on the on the internet. That's all there to see. Got the emails from the NWLC. You know, we've donated the money, every single penny. We've been completely transparent about that, as we always are. We've done plenty of things to donate to charity. Um, so yeah, the, the money to the charity, it's it's already you know it's already been donated. But the shirts are just taking a little bit longer because, like I said, the, the scumbags at Printful tried to fuck up our shit and wouldn't, and wouldn't print them. Anyway, that's just the update on the free Britney shirts. Um, this episode, uh, thank you to our sponsors. The episode is sponsored by Oracle Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, USA. They're an independent coffee business selling only fair trade products. See them at 3875 Southwest Bond Avenue, 97239. Tell them Popular Front sent you, you might get a discount, I don't know. Um, the episode is also sponsored by Grind Core House, a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA. One in South, one in West. Find them on socials at Grind Core House. We are doing a uh, Popular Front collaboration with them soon, I absolutely promise. Um, those guys are very busy, I'm very busy, um, but I've tried it, sampled the coffee, blah blah, the, the coffee that um, they're going to be selling, all free trades, um, fair trade I should say, uh, tastes good, it will blow your fucking head off, it's good coffee, good and strong, um, you know, if you're waiting and you're wondering, just talk to them on social media, at Grindcore House, ask them, hey, when's the Popular Front collaboration coming out, I'm sure they'll love you and me for that, yeah. The episode is also sponsored by Propagandopolis, an outlet selling and writing about historical conflict propaganda from around the world. Buy prints at propagandopolis.com. Use promo code POPULARFRONT10 for 10% off. If you want to follow us on social media, the Insta is at popular.front follow the backup as well 
because we're, we're probably going to get zooked soon um, because the, the people that work at Facebook or on Instagram don't realise that reporting on violent extremism and wars is not the same as causing violent extremism and wars somehow doesn't compute <laughs> so we're probably going to get taken down soon we're constantly getting flagged but yeah whatever fuck it the backup is at popular front underscore uh, twitter is at popular front co um what else fuck knows yeah website popular front dot shop for merchandise popular front dot co for everything else if you want to follow me on anything it's at jake underscore hanrahan h-a-n-r-a-h-a-n uh if you've messaged me and i haven't replied it's either like too busy or i've just haven't checked it um yeah whatever um anyway please do support us on patreon uh thank you very much to oh yeah wait hang on (laughs) So fucking hell. Um, intro music was by Home and the outro music was by Sam Black. Uh, listen to his music at samblackpf.com. Now, thank you very much to the high tier Patreons. They are Kate, Ellen, Dan Ross, Thumper, Lisa Milgram, Lupita Valens, Bradley Davies, Peter Hesher, RX, A. Nicole. Travis Lieberman, Cherry, Ben Marshall, Dallas Dunn, LD50 Seattle, MJ, Meredith Waters, Adam H, Larson8669, Carante, Bjorn Kirsten, Diamondstein, Jacob, uh, Michael O'Connor, Zach Picard, Todd Cravens, Alexander, Nicholas Butter, Ron Swanson, JD, Jav, Ian Froese, James Cully, Trinan Daly, sorry, Tainan, Tainan Daly, apologies, if I've said that wrong, let me know, Uh, Michael Akakan, Ethan, Fitz Madrid, Ed Coulthard, Johnny LeFleur, Clayton Taylor, Mike Barone, Ben, Liam Williams, Chris Cusimano, Degenerate Zero Alpha, Giorgio Arani, DR, Trey Nance, Amy R, Rubicon, uh, Frank Austin, Amelia Me, Nawais, Christina Rivetti, Freya Northman, Ali Hunter, Moody Al Rashid, Bill Wilson, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Tom Lochrin, Young Wasabi, Tony Bin, Adam Bergsnyder, JL, Stephen Davila, Anthony Kabarik, Dan Dunham, Fletcher Tate, Chad Walker, Diana Gorvenek, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock, and Maurice Zumbul. Thank you all so much. Top tier patrons, much appreciated. Cheers.